Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week we're talking to indie legend Peter Case. I think most people know his history, but in case you don't, he was part of the two part of two of the most important American kind of power pop, post-punk, alternative, new wave, however you want to define them, bands in history. First was the Nerves with Paul Collins, former guest Paul Collins, and Jack Lee. They never actually even put out a full album, just one EP. But on that EP was Hanging on the Telephone, which of course Blondie had a huge hit with later. Then he goes on and forms the Plimsolls, and they become one of the most popular draws in Southern California in the early 80s. Their biggest hit is this one right here, uh, Million Miles Away, which we all know from the Valley Girl soundtrack as well. Great, great band, but he, he leaves that eventually too. And he's been solo for, I think, over 35 years or so. And he's always done exactly what he's wanted to do. And he's carved out a really devout fan base and an interesting niche for himself ever since. His music has a little bit of blues and a little bit of jazz and a little bit of folk and a little bit of rock. And it's just whatever he's into. And he's garnered tons of respect for doing it that way ever since. In fact, that's one of the things I really enjoy talking with him about. In this interview, you can tell just his general love of music. And it's not always the, the same stuff that other people are into. A lot of it's out on the fringes or other things. He just loves it all and he takes it all in and it informs what he does. So last week, he just put out his first album in a, long, in a while called Dr. Moan. And it's excellent, but it's also a bit of a departure. It's very piano-focused, um, more mellow. We talk about where that came from, why he even felt inspired to do that. In fact, speaking of playing the piano, I should, I should, I won't say much because we kick off the interview with it in here, but there's a church in San Francisco that's dedicated to John Coltrane. And Peter, for a while there, was playing piano at the church. And I visited that church once. And so we, I want to know all about that. How do you get involved? How do you play? What do you do? Is it even still there? Did it survive COVID? All those things. So anyway, we get into all of it here, including his history. He's not normally too jazzed about talking about his history, but he did a little bit with me and then everything else as well. I hope you enjoy this. I loved it. He called me from his home in San Francisco. Okay, before we get into everything, uh, all the music and everything like that, so here's the deal. I mean, I, I sometimes wait, to the if I even remember, I sometimes wait until the last minute to read the press materials that come with these things because... I only really talk to people I'm a fan of, and I come with, you know, decades of my own questions and baggage into these things. But I read just earlier today, it says, since moving back to San Francisco, you've been attending the St. John Coltrane African Orthodox Church. Is that true? Because I went, I used to live in the Bay Area, and I went to that church once, and it was an experience I will never, ever, ever forget. Yeah, it's fantastic, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. I I, I did it um, before the pandemic, and then when it, it was interrupted by the uh, pandemic, but I was the I was playing piano for them for quite a while. Wow! It was a big, great learning experience, and like the, I loved their I loved the whole service, and they had a beautiful they had all these beautiful icons, and they're beautiful yes. people. They're wonderful people with a great message. So I, I would go there every week, you know. Okay, so we could do an hour just on this. I mean, I promise yeah, we'll yeah. get to the new album and everything, but. So I went once and it was probably, it was literally almost about 20 years ago. And um, 
it, we were on just like fold out chairs. It was nothing mm-hmm. too special. And the, if I remember correctly at the front, the band or whoever does a love Supreme basically start to finish. And there's a preacher, but he's not really preaching anything. He's more kind of, it's just about feeling the spirit of the music and yeah, however, you know, you identify religion. I, it wasn't even overtly Christian. It was just about like a spiritually uplifting experience. Yeah. Using yeah. The love Supreme. It's a good word. Yeah. Uplifting. Yeah. Uh, it's African Orthodox church. So it is Christian, but, but they, uh, they don't, it's not like uh, anything else really. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so yeah, it's really, really, really inspiring. And people come from all over the world to go there. They've, they've moved around a few times. Now they've got a new location after the um, shutdown. They moved down to this place called the Magic uh, Magic Theater down on uh, Fort Mason. And um, okay. they've got a great location. But for a while there, when I was doing it with them, we were playing. We were in uh, a big church. It was a big uh, Episcopal really? church. Yeah, and they had all their icons in there. And I was playing a grand piano. And they had a great band, guys coming through there, all the, you know, the jazz musicians who would come be coming through town for Saturday night and yes. Sunday morning. They'd be there, you know. Oh. Super inspiring people, yeah. Franzo King, you know, uh, the Archbishop, uh, the King, they call him, and uh, the whole the whole crew over there, and the singers and everything is really great. I am so glad to hear this because I've often wondered if that church is even still around. Fifty years, um, man. They just had a fifty-year oh, anniversary. You know? Yes, I'm so, so they've been glad. around there forever, man. They, they're still going strong. I'm so glad to hear that. And I don't, I don't know. The week we were there, I think it was just music start to finish. I don't know that anyone ever actually even gave a sermon or anything like that. Does that happen? Is it always the same thing? What's the format? You know, it's not like a jazz, you know, mass or something. The the uh-huh. music is the main part of the uh, of the service. That's the most important part of it. But they yeah. also they do this thing where they read from the um, they read from the gospels, but they sing it when they read it improvising singing and it's incredible the way they do it yeah and then um quite often there's another singer from the group you know the family that is involved with that church is um an old-time jazz family and they have a lot of um, roots in jazz and so they incredible things happen there every week there's guest artists all the time and local people it's very beautiful, and sometimes uh, someone will speak, but not always okay. at length. You know, uh, often it's uh, um, the messages in the music, and sometimes they meditate yeah. on the music. That's Ooh, interesting yeah. too. Okay, would if it weren't for this church, would you even be a church-going person? You don't strike me as being overly religious. Not that anyone has to be, or I can't has to identify that way. But that's such a specific place to tr- yeah. to focus your spiritual energy you know yeah i'm not really going to any other churches uh you know i was brought up my parents had left my mother was uh you know irish catholic and then they left the uh my father wanted to leave the church and so they did and uh you know there were different things they tried to do but you know i was brought up with a spiritual side but but not really a church going religious side yeah yeah that makes sense do the people at the john coltrane church even know who you are or are you just that white guy? I started to get the idea. Piano. I played piano there for about three years, and uh, <laughs> they did come. They came to a few of my gigs, and I think one oh, of them they came, to, they came to a gig, and um, I surprised them one time because they thought I was a, um, just a piano player, and then I pulled out a harmonica one day and started rocking it on this harmonica, <laughs> and they were like, "I was like, wow, you know, like, this is crazy." But uh, 
it was a big learning experience. Like, yeah. you know, that kind of music is, uh, when I first started playing with them, you know, I was there for about two and a half months. And then the bass player one day, who's also the pastor there, took me aside and said, you're starting to get it Ooh. after two and a half months. And so, you know, it, they, they, but they never said anything, you know, and like I was starting yeah. to get it. And so, you know, they let me, you know, they have a lot of people that they bring up through it. And I started to get it. You know, you, you get the, uh, the bug and you start learning things for it. There's a certain way you got to play with John Coltrane's music so that, you know, you know, so you don't get in the way with some yeah. uh, corny, you know, thing, but ever, ever. <laughs> how do you but even yeah. become the go-to piano player? Do you have, do you apply for this? Do you oh, no. feel the Holy spirit and just walk up and start playing someday? How does it even work? We were going there, you know, me and my wife, Denise, we would go down there, you know, and uh, one day I was there and, their piano player didn't show up and Archbishop King gets up and goes, uh, is there anyone here? You know, are there any piano players here? And uh, I didn't raise my hand. And then my wife like pushed my hand up. <laughs> the guy goes, you play piano, come on up front, you know? Uh -huh. uh -huh. And so they put me on the piano and they, they never told me the keys ever once ever. They don't wow. talk like that. You know, it's, it's, you listen and you play. Yeah. And so uh, and so it was like being in the moment and being in the music and being in in the uh, spirit of that music. Yeah. And so uh, yeah, it was very beautiful. Very, I learned so much from them. You know, I I can't even uh, tell you how much. I believe it. Uh, how, I believe how great it. The, the the experience is playing with them. I haven't been doing it lately, but um, I would like to get back to them. Oh, beautiful! Next time I'm in the Bay Area, I gotta go. In fact, as soon Good. as I was read that about you, I thought I'm gonna go buy me a John Coltrane T-shirt. And so I hurried and got online and bought a Love Supreme t-shirt just to show my solidarity because it was so cool to hear. Coltrane's so beautiful, yeah. He's such yeah. a great, he was such a, such a great spiritual experience, you know, leader, Coltrane, yes. in, in such a quiet way, you know, outside yeah. of his music, which is incredible. You know, I, I had a um, heart operation at one point. And, uh, I know, I was going to ask you about this. I was in the middle of that, and I, I was awake at one point during it. And the doctor was listening to, uh, first he, like, like, uh, He's got like an iPod going and the Ramones come up, you know, uh -huh. <laughs> and then that stops. And then Coltrane, Love Supreme, was it Love Supreme? No, it was My Favorite Things comes on No way. in the operating room. And then uh, I'm like, what's going on? The nurse goes, oh, do the doctor, you know, uh -huh. he he's all about his iPod. <laughs> but it was like an incredible kind of wild experience because I was very vulnerable. And I heard that music in a different way when I was about to. I believe knocked it. out for a big operation. I believe <laughs> it. Super heavy, man. You know. Yeah, one of my good buddies is an OR surgeon, and he was telling me this a while ago that he's like, "You wouldn't." It's all about the iPod in the operating room, whoever yeah. the doctor is, and you'd be surprised. It's not what you think. It's not like new age gospel no. or whatever symphonic. There are a lot of them that can't do it without the Ramones or yeah, they know, were playing the Ramones in there. <laughs> they played the Ramones and then they played a wild piece by Coltrane. So there you go. I mean, there you go. Plus they have eclectic taste. If you're listening to the Ramones and then listening to Coltrane, I mean, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> well, they're the masters of their domain. They can do what yeah, they want. That's right. They can do what um, they okay. So this leads then to the new album, Dr. Moan, because it's funny. I put it on to listen to in the first track. Have you ever been in trouble? It's great. It's kind of a little bit of a rocker. Have you ever been in trouble? Do you remember how it feels? Or are you living in a bubble caught between the wheels? Tonight you feel the danger rising on the wind. 
Tearing out your jacket, ripping at your skin Have you ever been in trouble? You slipped by somehow Have you ever been in trouble? The kind you're in right now Where well, there's freedom down the bandit avenue Do you see someone come? I don't realize when I listen to the rest that it's one of the only rockers so the next song comes on that gang of mine and it's got this gorgeous piano in, in her, uh introduction and i'm thinking oh that's what we're dealing with here piano is going to take the focus on this album and i was wondering so i've talked to a few people just in the last couple of years where this has been the case daniel lanois was on here he's kind of focused on the piano right now the last last billy bragg album was not entirely piano but it's on there tony carey i've been talking to a lot of people lately where i guess during lockdown piano was what they wanted to hear and they've built entire albums around this why was it the go-to for you I've been playing piano ever since I was a little kid. You know, it was one of my early instruments. And uh, when I left home, I kind of left it behind and I took the guitar with me on the road. Um, you know, you, you can't call around a piano. All that. I think I did have a piano and I hauled it around for about a week. You know, you had to get like six guys and buy everybody a cheeseburger. You know, it was, just, it was too much. And so, uh, you know, I hit the road with a guitar and like that was it for a while. But anytime I'd be around a piano, I just loved to play. I love the piano and I love to play it, but I didn't have spend a lot of time on it. Now I've played keyboards on different records I made and stuff, but during the lockdown, the, the shutdown, you know, I, I was uh, here in my pad, the front room has a piano in it and 
I was claustrophobic, kind of anxious, you know, like we all were, you know, I'm, oh, I'm going to be going nuts. I'm, like I had a great tour lined up. I was going to Europe and then all across the United States. It was going to be, I had this new album called, called The Midnight Broadcast, which is one of my it's best albums. I'm going to ask you about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and it came out, but like we couldn't go tour it, you know. And so uh, I go, well, I'm just in the room with this piano and I'm kind of, uptight being locked in here but i'm just going to play every day just for fun i'm just going to play a, f a few hours a day and i'm going to sit here and just play whatever comes up so i got down on the piano and i started to play you know and i first started off playing some jimmy antsy stuff and uh i learned uh, in walk bud like a real gut bucket version of it because i played gut bucket jazz i'm not a real jazz player but i learned how to play uh all blues. I had kind of a boogie boogie. <laughs> I was watching this Herbie Hancock thing and I saw what he was, he was demonstrating the song and he had this like left hand that almost sounded like a rock and roll left hand. So I was playing different things like that and playing all day, learning different songs and goofing around. And then one day I just, these songs just started to come in. Now the world was completely silent at that point. And I'm then there playing piano and it's dark out and uh, it's ghost town out there. Like y'all, we all remember. And, yeah. My piano was echoing up and down the street, you know, and I was playing these song, these this first song, you know, that "Have You Ever Been in Trouble" started to come to me, and I I played it, and it just all the whole thing came together through it, and uh, I don't think I don't know if you know I don't really divide music into rockers that much and slow ones or whatever, you know, but um, some of the record is more orchestrated, and then some of it has more of a blues feel. There's a song called "Flying Crow" on there. A cup of coffee and a slice of cake We'll be all the way to Kansas City For the drive whatever hits the break When you're gone I got two lights on Two lights on Well, that red light that means trouble Flying crow left port out the street fire took the crew Changed water in Texarkana And the driver said push on through Don't you know we're gone Got two lights on Two lights on behind Oh, and there's another one. There's a couple things that have that sort of Jimmy Yancey thing. And there's a song called Give Me Five Minutes More. That's like a, a, a real rocker. Give me five minutes more to sell this thing. To tell my story and straighten it out. Give me five minutes more to see her one more time. To fix the trouble and try it again. Give me five minutes more. Only five minutes more Oh, give me five minutes more To answer the question To find the solution Look it up Give me five minutes more To explain myself Win or lose To turn it around Give me five minutes more Only five minutes more Give me five minutes more Just five minutes more Five minutes more Only five minutes more 
to get it right, to let it go, to say goodbye, to say hello, to pick it up, put it down, to make them laugh, and calm them down, I'll give it five minutes more. So there's a lot of faster material on it, but there's also a lot of this kind of music that came to me. It all came to me during the during the shutdown and one song at a time. And I would just play them over and over and they would come to me and they would sort of transform. And I just tuned into that wavelength and and I'd go out and the streets are empty. And then there'd be a guy walking by like, are you the. Are you playing that piano in there? Oh, yeah. And you go, oh, yeah, I really like that one you're working on right now. <laughs> it's the only response you would get, you know? Yeah. And so, uh, you know, yeah. so that's how it went. That makes sense. I, You know, when I listen to it, it to me, I liked when you were talking about getting into that wavelength because the, the term that I kept coming up with is that it doesn't sound fussed over. It sounds like a guy, like you were saying, with the world shut down, it's right. dead quiet. And you're in your living room on your piano and you're just playing something that feels good. And a wordsmith like you, I wondered what you were saying. I wondered if how like it doesn't feel like you worked too hard, that you were just sort of like channeling something for all these different vibes or moods you're finding on the piano as you're banging away in the silence. Something is coming to you. And because you're such a talented wordsmith, always have been you can rely on that muscle delivering when you need it to. Yeah. And, you know, I love words. Yeah. I've always been someone that liked words. You know, I was never one of those hippies like, oh, you know, your words are no good, man. You know, (laughs) I always thought words were like way better than just sitting there dumb, you know. Uh So uh, I like words, you know. Does it come uh, easy to you, though? That's the thing that I keep coming back to is I'm not imagining you like, oh, I didn't like this turn of phrase or I got to redo this one or I can't find the right, you know, story to go along with this. It doesn't feel that way. It feels very natural. Well, it should, you know, because that's that's the way music's best. You know, you don't want to sit there and, you know, fool around over it too much and like destroy the um, the ether that comes to it from the, um, you know, wherever it's coming from. I believe I believe that you get on a wavelength and you write it. But, yeah. you know, um, that's that's because, you know, that's that's the work. You know, the work is, a, you know, you work on yourself and you, the work's kind of invisible. I was watching the show last night on TV about Charlie Parker, you know, and it was about how he like uh, went into this room and played like, you know, 12 hours a day after he got put down at some club, you know, and uh, then he came out and then they show a clip of Charlie Parker playing and it's just unbelievably easy, but it's super complex, you know, he's just playing like the fastest wailingest thing, but, but it's, um, yeah, all improvised, but it's got this like ball bearing, you know, just like spirit, you know, flying. Yeah. And that's what you want from the songs. That's what I'm trying to I'm after, too, is like the getting the things that have like that juice on them, that inspirational <laughs> thing, because you don't want people to feel like, um, you know, it, 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 it's got to be lighter in a way. You know, yeah. I used to like what Jimi Hendrix used to say. He said, I'm trying to be helium. I'm not trying to get heavier and heavier with my lyrics. I'm trying to be helium. I like that's that. But I like heavy lyrics, too, like Dylan writes sure. people like that. But, you know. Yeah. You know what I'm saying. So, so uh, you're right. Yeah. You know, you want to get it, you want to get them on the wavelength and get it as pure as possible. Yeah. I, um, one of my favorite, um, bits about the album is the accent that the B3 organ brings to just about every song. 
Um, the what? The B three, the organ. Oh yeah. I I love that it's there to just bring a an extra layer of like depth and heft to a lot of these songs. Girl in Love with the Shadow, especially. Oh yeah. No way of reaching you I didn't know if I got through The room was dark, so was the pie I wondered if I'd ever spot That girl in love with a shadow That girl in love with a shadow We were down in South L.A. I finally found a job to play. There was a night I spent in jail. I found the light but lost the trail of that girl in love with a shadow. That That girl in love Pencil marks on the wall That night I must have tried them all A voice said she's not around Gone up to the edge of town Found a ghost where the shadows fall if she's coming back at all that girl in love with a shadow. it's so beautiful and then the b3 comes in and you're kind of trans it takes it to this whole other level when you make this album are you i don't hear or imagine a lot of overdubbing you know, yeah. you could have gone in and overdubbed guitar parts where you wanted even bluesy bits but it doesn't sound like any of that was done no, no, I thought that, you know, it was best not to like, I, I like things that uh, are easy to get your ears around. Yeah. I didn't want to have, I wanted it to be kind of, I don't know. It's, it was getting the job done, you know? And so yeah. uh, sometimes simple things are the best. And so it, it, to me, music is best in its, you know, pure states. I, yeah. I, you know, I like big orchestras too, and like four pianos and three drummers sure. and two bass players <laughs> and, you know, a horn section and everything. But on this, you know, on this record, I wanted to capture really the sort of the spirit that it was coming from. This is the first record where really ever for me that I, I could just start the record, like conceive, like start playing music every day and then have the songs come to me and then learn how to play the song. Cause you got to learn how to play them at some point and then get them, get them down, learn how to play them and then go into the studio and do it all in one thing without having to go on the road uh, for six weeks about five different times. And so that's what happened. Uh, most of my records I'll get, a big piece of it. And then I got to go on the road, you know, and all of a sudden you're running out the door and you're on your way to the airport. And then like, next yeah. thing you know, you're trying to, you know, you're playing dates and trying to jam around at dates for like weeks on end. And you, you yeah. kind of forget um, what you were doing. So you have to come back and re-enter, you know, but on this record, I didn't have to do that. I was just, and I think you can hear that in it. You yeah. know, it might be one of my best records for that, in my opinion, you know, because you yep. can hear that it's focused. You can hear that. Yes. There's kind of a center to it that like really holds. Perfectly um, said. Yes. Yeah. 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 Perfectly said. I totally agree. 
Um, I wanted to, it was interesting yesterday I was listening to a podcast and, um, the, the person being interviewed was talking, he worked in the music industry for a long time. And he was talking about when he first got his love of music and he grew up in California and he was saying, you know, when I was young and I was a teenager, I got myself a fake ID, not because I wanted to drink, but because I wanted to get into clubs so I could watch Peter case. Wow. And, uh, yeah. And, and <laughs> who said that? Let me. Uh, when I was a little kid, I went to shows with my big sister. You know, I, I, I used to go. See, I saw the Grateful Dead play when I was like uh, thirteen or twelve. Thirteen, I saw the Paul Butterfield Blues Band when I was thirteen. I saw the Jefferson Airplane. I saw, I saw all kinds of stuff when I was just yeah. a young teenager, and it hit me so hard, man. I saw a lot of great people, and they and the like. For example, seeing Paul Butterfield, it was like uh, at, at that age, I saw him in a little club and I was with my dad and my mom, you know, and they liked him. And so we went and it just um, changed my life, really. His command of, the, of what he was doing with the band and the harp and the singing and the whole, it was just like, wow. You know, it was like a real example. And like, you, if you hear music that's great like that, you know, you get it in your body, man. And, you know, yes. you, you, know you got to hear it young. Like I heard piano young, really young as a kid from my big sister, you know, played a lot of rock and roll piano and stride and stuff. So you get it, you get stuff in your um, system, man. And then, you you know, and I think you get it by seeing people live. So I, that's cool that that person said yeah. that. The, um, the this is super specific. The podcast is for people who work, who used to work for Tower Records. For who? I, for Tower Records. Oh, wow. I worked for Tower Records briefly in the early two thousand. Where? For a couple of years. I worked in the in the. I was in regional advertising and marketing, so I was in the main office in, in, in Sacramento. A, mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I, I yeah. visited over there one time. I'm sure you did. Um, and so the the podcast is all people who spent their parts of their careers working for tower records and this guy in particular his name is bob kaufman he was the general manager in asian development and wow. senior vp of business development anyway his most cool. of his career took place in asia but wow, the reason yeah the reason i was telling that story is because it occurred to me that people love you and and Every, you know, most people have fans, but you have a very specific kind of fan, or mm-hmm. let me rephrase that. You are a very specific kind of artist who has carved a niche for yourself and attracted the, a very specific kind of fan. What do you, what do you equate that to? Because it's not, you know, Elvis Costello is one thing or Bob Dylan's another, but you've got this one lane that is very much your own. And I wonder, what do you attribute people's love of you to? What do you think they love you for? Well, I don't know, man. I guess the music. But, really? you know, maybe maybe the the outlaw quality of the, the oh, pursuit. Oh, good point. Know? The outlaw. You know, you know my so heroes when I was a kid were blues singers. I mean, I love the Beatles, Stones, and Dylan and stuff. But, you know, and uh, I grew up in a house with 50s rock and roll in it all the time. But by the time I was, like, you know, 15 or 16, my heroes were the blues singers and poets. Yes. You know? I loved the beat poets like Corso and Ginsburg and stuff. And then I loved blues singers like Lightning Hopkins and, um, you know, uh, Muddy Waters and stuff like that, but especially like Sleepy John Estes and people like that. And so th- those were my heroes. And like, it, it was a world I pursued 
I just I pursued the music, you know. Yeah. I, I don't know what it is though, you know. I've tried to really be, tr you know. I tried to get good at what I did, you know. And uh, mm -hmm. you know, I, I I believe people keep get keep improving. And like I also, uh, I knew when I was fourteen that I wanted to. I was just going to be a musician, but it mm -hmm. never even occurred to me for quite a while that I would like go make records and like. Uh, yeah. You know, I remember yeah. I met Jack Lee from the Nerves, you know, mm -hmm. and I was playing on the street every night. And he comes out and he's like, "Hey, man, you know, you want to smoke a joint?" Yeah, sure. You know, so we go down to his car, you know, and then we smoke a joint, and then we each play each other one of our songs. He played me "Hanging on the Telephone." He played yeah. it like right there in the car while you're yeah, smoking. Yeah, 1974. You know, Holy cow. And I was I was like, "Wow!" And I played him "When You Find Out," the other song. On oh, the, oh, you know? and so. <laughs> And so we're sitting there, and then he goes, well, how are you going to make it, man? And I go, what? He says, how are you going to make it? We're like high as hell, sitting on Stockton Street and, and, and Broadway, right? You know, and the sun's uh -huh. going down. He's like, how are you going to make it, man? Like, you know, uh, uh, you know, make records and, you know, be on TV and radio. And, you know, that, and like it, I, I go, I, I, at first I go, Make it. I, I am. I'm playing every night out here on the uh -huh. street, and I'm playing at the coffee gallery, you know, and I play at Gulliver's Tavern, you know. <laughs> you know? He goes, no, man, you know, records and stuff. Yeah. And it hadn't, I never really had gotten serious about that. And I was 19 or 20 or something. And so we started that band, and uh, but I'd never really thought of it before. I just wanted to play. And so yeah. I went through a long period. Like when you play on the street, you know, we were spending long days out there. I had this little cadre of, you know, people that I would play on the street with. And uh, in fact, there's this movie out now that a guy made. I haven't seen it yet, but I want to. Yeah, they made a movie. It's uh, called A Million Miles Away. And it's about kind of about my career and my music. But it starts out with like me playing on the street because there was a guy that made a movie about us back then, about me back then, and in in when I was nineteen, you know. So you just get to see this. I'm just out, you know. I'm just out there playing on the street, you know. And I spent hours doing it, you know. Like I didn't have a. I tell people like I didn't have a higher education, you know. I dropped out of high school and came west and played music, and um, you know while you while you guys were getting your higher education, I was getting a lower education. <laughs> you know, <laughs> on the street, man. And so, uh, you know, um, I, I lived kind of, you know, kind of a ragamuffin kind of life. I was living in an abandoned, uh, you know, all this kind of thing, you know, living, sure. living completely cheap, basically living for nothing so that I could yeah. spend all my time playing music and learn how to play and playing every day and every night for people like hours on end on different street corners around the city. And uh, that's part of it. Yeah. It makes, yeah. you know, when, when you're, I've noticed that like people that spend a lot of time playing street music, you know, they have a certain kind of um, resilience. And so. Perfect word. Yes. Nothing could. And so after doing that, like nothing really brings you down because like, you know, you'd be out there and like play for five hours some days and make it be kind of rainy and you'd make like, you know, three bucks or something, man. <laughs> you know, it'd be like terrible. Yeah? That's right. But you would have enough to go get, you know, a pack of cigarettes and a pork bun at the um, you know, Chinese <laughs> restaurant. That's and right. so, you know, uh, where we load. It's all we need in life, right? Yeah, I was like, these point. pork buns are great, and they're only a quarter, man. Yeah. Because back in those days, everything you wanted was a quarter. Like a pork bun was a True. quarter, a gallon of gas was a quarter, a, a pack of cigarettes was a quarter. Everything was a quarter, you know. Those days are gone. That's true. That's true. Okay. I don't, I, you strike me as somebody who, doesn't really get off on talking about the past too much. In fact, I was thinking, and so I'm not going to make you dwell on it too much. I just have a couple of questions. In fact, okay. it reminded me, I had Nick Hayward on here 
um, a few years ago, and I, I think he's similar. The lead singer of Haircut 100. Okay. Are you sure? Yeah, Nick Hayward. Wasn't in the Moody Blues? No. <laughs> What's that guy's name? Is he a That's Hayward? That's uh, Justin Hayward. Oh, Justin okay. Hayward his dad or something. Yeah, uh, yeah, right. They're related, I'm sure. Um, so Nick Hayward, who I think is just a really super gifted singer-songwriter on his own right, um, we were talking, and he was in he was in Haircut 100 for like a year and a half, maybe. You know, and that's it. And he spent the rest of his career doing what he does exceptionally. And for the, but for the rest of his life, he will be Nick Hayward, formerly of Haircut 100. And I wonder if you feel that way ever. Like, look, I've been doing this my own thing for like 35 years now. More than that. It was not particular. True. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it is 35 years. I don't know. Well, solo is what I mean, but you're right. Yeah. No, I see what you're saying. Yeah. But, you know, eventually, do you ever get over being Peter Case, formerly of the Nerves and formerly of the Plimsolls? And does it bother you? Are you okay with that? I can't really do anything about it, you know. Yeah. Uh, um, but I'm proud of the nerves and the plimsolls. And, good, and good. We, we went out and tried to rock. You know, the nerves, we were, we were trying to, like, electrify the music industry before uh, punk rock happened. We were, like, had, like, a super uh, punk rock attitude. I see your shirt there, you know. But yeah. the nerves, we weren't really uh, – um, we were before punk rock. But then we opened up shows for the Ramones and uh, Mink DeVille and all this kind of, you know, Perubu and Devo. And, we, I mean, they opened for us, actually. We were out on the road, man. It's 1977. We opened for the Ramones, but they didn't open for us. They were like the Beatles to us. And then we made this EP, and then um, Blondie cut that song. And like once, once something, that's when we went into the culture, not really with our own record as much. We were like very underground. But then when Blondie sold like seven or eight million copies of uh, Parallel Lines, and that was the first track on there was our song. And so, you know, a lot of people know us from that. Now, the Plimsolls, like, was designed to be, like, the Nerves, like, have the songs kind of like the Nerves, except have a band that, like, the the Nerves, like, you know, they, they were good, but they didn't, um, they didn't, they couldn't blow the roof off the place live as much. They were more about songs, you know. And then when the Plimsolls happened, we wanted to have a band that just could come out and, like, just, you know, have the songs, but then also just, like, you know, explode the place with music. So that's what we did. And we were very popular up out in California. We broke attendance records and everybody liked us and all this stuff, but it it never, for some reason, um, you know, it's just the way it goes. So people, um, know me from those things and they're good things, you know? So, 
but but it's confusing if like for a while there they were like well so what are, are you really serious about this like you're you're gonna be a singer song like what you know but like now i've paid the dues for so long that people know that i'm uh, good dead good. serious <laughs> yeah so, you know I'm, i've been at it for a long time and so like i don't have to fight you know with my past so it's okay you know okay. um okay. Nurse and so, you know I'm, I'm not you know we were we always we never did anything just to like uh we never sold out or anything, you know, oh, I was, we were just trying definitely to like do not. our thing, man. And yeah. so like we, uh, you know, it was very pure, you know, uh, in its own, I mean, its own stupid way. Sure. You know, uh, it was, you know, we were like teenage rock and roll and like, we're going to play this kind of rock and roll the way we think it should be. And everybody else stinks and we're going to do yeah. it real strip. You know, that was our reality, <laughs> not so much in the plimsolls, but with those guys. And, you know, we, uh, I'm proud of it. You know, we did yeah. our thing and, and, um, there's the occasional reunion, isn't there? Not of the nerves. No. Is that like Paul was on here very early, like my first interview practically. Um, I get the feeling he'd be down for it, but is that, is that like, you know, we, we were down for it and we did go out and do a tour that was actually quite successful in certain ways. Okay. Um, Paul and I did, it was the music of the, you know, the, the nerves, the beat and the plimsolls and some of the, so our solo stuff. And so we went out and toured around the country, but you know, it was sometimes when you have a reunion of a band, you remember why they broke up in the first place after you like played, you know, 30 yeah. days You go, Oh yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> you know, but, uh, <laughs> but the, ner- the plimsolls like were together again for quite a while in the nineties and then into the 2000s and, you know, we, we worked pretty hard, you know, for a while yeah. there. And and, we, and I would con- the plimsolls will never break up twice, you know. We're still together. The nerves still kind of function as a band too, in a weird way. Like in okay. terms of business, we don't. Um, but you know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Paul, you know, yeah, Paul, Paul. We've had some offers and stuff, but the bands. There's I can't really go into it, but the band it really probably can't because mm-hmm. due to health and stuff. There's reasons sure. why we can't go out and play yeah. as a band. Okay, I was curious. Is there when you when the I've never been a hundred percent sure whether the plimsolls broke up or you left because you wanted to explore this never ending exploration of blues and, and jazz and all the, and all the other things, folk, all the other things that make up who Peter case is that wouldn't have fit in the plimsolls. You know what happened, man was like, I was, when I was playing on the street, I was playing all this different kinds of music. I was playing like, you know, folk arrangements and you know we were playing in that movie i'm playing the harder they come i'm playing what's that song uh yeah the harder they come i played it yeah, in that movie yeah. that they filmed in 74 i'm playing all different kinds of things you know and then um when i got the nerves like we rejected the leader of the band i guess was jack you know and like he, we used to argue and he goes well what's that? everything stinks man like everything's horrible music's terrible i go well I don't know. The Stones are pretty great, man. Like XL Main Street, you know, uh, that's crap, man. They were good when Brian Jones was in there, but not, you know, this, this new stuff. I said, well, what about the band, man? You know, the band album, you know, uh, that stuff's, you know, that's washed up. Oh, Dylan, man. Uh, you know, so he's like, you know, he hated everything. And so he just liked like sixties rock and roll. But like when I joined the band as a bass player and he was writing songs and I was writing songs. And so, um, I wanted to play in a band, you know, and, and uh, I liked his spirit of, uh, I didn't really necessarily agree with his whole spirit about music, but I definitely, his spirit, his, he had an, he had ambition in a beautiful way to like make this teenage rock and roll. And I really got into it. Mm-hmm. And so I grew up in the, and the plimsolls kind of expanded it into soul music 
and certain uh-huh. things that like the nerves weren't really doing that much of. And we sometimes performed with a horn section and we were doing folk rock, like there's a folk rock element to a million miles away and other things we did. And as we went on, you know, it kept broadening. And then all of a sudden it's 1983 and, uh, and I'm starting to get back into like all this music that I was doing before I got in the nerves, you know, and I was in the Mississippi jam and hurt and I'd learned to play guitar with this guy, uh, Mike Wilhelm from the original charlatans, the San Francisco charlatans. And I'd learned Mance Lipscomb songs, you know, and uh, Mississippi John Hurt and all this different stuff. And so now I'm bringing it all back because now I'm, I'm, you know, I'm in my late 20s and I'm pulling all the different things I love and putting it back into the music. And I wanted to do it. At one point, I was going to do it with the Plimsolls. And then I felt like they weren't really keen on going with me into that area. They just wanted to keep, you know, certain members wanted to keep doing the same thing. So at one point, finally, I said, look, man, I'm going to I'll leave the band and I'll leave you. You know, if you guys, you, you guys stay together, you know, I'll even write songs for you, like Brian Jones, Brian Wilson, right? For the, not that I'm like that, but you know what I'm saying? And so I was still wanted to be involved and I even had a singer. I thought maybe could work for them, but um, the, they didn't really get along with each other. The band broke up and then Geffen resigned me. I made demos and um, they resigned me uh, to the solo deal. So, um, okay. So that's how that happened. But, you know, it, 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 back in those days, you know, you had to, I used to feel like you had to commit. Mm-hmm. You know, these days people have side projects and then their side projects have side projects. But back mm-hmm. in those days, it was like, if you're going to go out and be a singer songwriter, then go do it, man. Jump yeah. in with both feet and do it like full on, you know, like, yeah. that's the only way it's going to really be believable. And uh, that's what I did. I get it. Um, okay. I might have another question about that later, but I'll sprinkle it in. I want to talk about your, some of your more recent stuff, especially this, the solo things you mentioned the midnight broadcast. What an interesting idea. I read somewhere. I think that you, your intention was to create something that is resembles what the night, what the name of it is, a midnight broadcast. Someone on some dark road in the middle of the night, and something's kind of being beamed in from you know the airwaves or whatever, and you're along for this program or whatever. Is that what you were thinking? Oh, absolutely, yeah. The midnight broadcast is like was inspired by a car ride in New England. But I mean, I've had a million car rides in the middle of the night. Uh-huh. And they can you get done with a gig and you drive to the next gig all night, you know? Of course, and I've done that so many times, you know. So you turn the radio on. Sometimes you're alone in a car. Sometimes you're with some people, and you turn the radio on. You're hypnotized. You're looking at your headlights on the highway uh-huh. and the dashboard, and 
And then like all of a sudden you go into this new area and like the station starts coming in and they're pl- like, what the hell is that, man? What's this guy playing? You get hypnotized by it. And so, yeah. so I had it like, I've had a couple of experiences like that where you hear music that just really opens up your heart in that situation. It's almost like a sensory deprivation tank. And, um, Plus, you're rolling and you're on the road, and it's very, yeah. very. And so, I wanted to create that feel, and so uh, we went down to uh, Martha's Vineyard. There's a place called the Old Whaling Church. It's like you know, like Moby Dick. Like there's like that was a whaling community, Martha's Vineyard. You know, there was nobody in town. There weren't like a whole lot of rich people there. Like when you're there in the off season, it's just like a ghost town kind of. You know, it's a little town. And so we go into this old whaling church, and it's had this incredible echo in it, and. You didn't need to use any it's any echo, so we we just recorded the whole album on this. Um, we recorded it on a Nagra recorder, which is what they used to use in movies to record dialogue back in the '60s. It's oh, a wow. very portable reel to reel tape recorder that's pretty rare, but they're they're great for um, live recording. And then some of the record. Uh, but there's so the record. There was a little group playing that, including one of the guys that used to play on the street with me back in the day, Bert Devert, who, who uh, had filmed the footage that's in my movie. But so he flies in from Sweden, and then Ron Franklin produced it. It was like a Memphis guitar player that had played with, uh, and he played with um, um, Arthur Lee, and he's played he's played with a lot of incredible people. But he was he's an old friend of mine, and so he came in, and we 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 produced this record where. I'm doing folk songs and like sea songs of the sea, but I'm also um, playing rock and roll uh, with uh, Bird on drums, and we're playing. Uh, uh, we did a version of like a, but then we've got Moog synthesizer, so it's not just like a pure like boring folk kind of record, but it's got like not the folks boring, but it's yeah. got like it's got like some weird elements to it. And Very then we got a so. DJ, and we got this guy, and he's a DJ, um, Ross Johnson, who's from Memphis and grew up listening to Dewey Phillips on the radio down there. Uh-huh. Well, when he was a kid. So he does the DJ thing and then the thing's going in and out of focus. And then there's like ambient music that like Ron brought to it. You know, it's like, like on the Moogs and stuff. And I played a little Moog myself on the thing and we recorded all. So the whole, the thing's like a combination of folk, rock and roll, ambient, you know, chess records and sea chanties. And it's a crazy record. It it was a very satisfying, it was a very fun record to make. The Midnight Broadcast, it's on Bandaloop Records. I don't know where you, you know, if you come to my gigs, you might be able to buy it. Um, due to the fact that it came out during the um, shutdown, it's uh, pretty rare, but there's yeah. copies of it. You know, we got copies of it. So T-Bone Burnett is- told me, he's like, you made a great record, man. I go, what record are you talking about, man? He goes, that one you did on the Nagra. <laughs> we were really? Yeah, yeah, and so so uh, he knew about it. So yeah. you know, it's got it's creating like sort of an underground kind of following that record. The yes. Midnight Broadcast. It's on Bandaloop Records. I think they have a Bandaloop Music website. You can order it. Cool. It's very it's very cool. It's interesting. I was when you were explaining about wanting to recreate that. I thought you know it's a shame most people these days just well. I still have a bunch of CDs, but if I don't, I'm streaming something on Spotify or whatever. But it occurred to me the magic of an of an album like that is that, and I think you'll agree, there's something about hearing your favorite song on the radio That's right. versus hearing it on when you've pu- pulled it up on demand. Something about that DJ picking the, your favorite song at that moment, validating your own feelings and love for something. That's the magic of the radio, which is completely is. lost these days. It's magic you know. because it's it's un. 
it's it's a one of a kind performance, you know. Yeah. And so, and so it's very beautiful, and um, yeah, it's a person, somebody picking songs out that they love, and you're feeling this whole thing coming through, and it surprises you, you know. Yeah. So that's yeah. what this record does. It like jumps from you know different. It's very surprising, it. you know. Yeah. But it's, all it's like creating good, an experience you know? like that out in the yeah, road. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. great. Um, I was mentioning earlier about the right people loving you, and I was talking about the fans, but it goes well beyond that too because the right musicians also love you and always have i want to ask specifically one of my i think my two favorite peter case albums are probably highway 62 and let us now praise sleepy john and um every 24 hours on that has richard thompson driving 12 hours after the show hit the border at dawn and kept going as the moon crossed my path, I was doing the math. Will I make it? There's no way of knowing. I should have called home before she went to sleep. I prayed the Lord for her soul to keep. Tomorrow will tell who's been tending the sheep. The world turns every 24 hours. And I'm thinking, I mean, I can kind of imagine you two seem sort of like brothers in a way, you know, like brothers in arms or, uh, but yeah. how does, how do, how do you get Richard Thompson to want to come collaborate with you on a song like that? You know? Well, we asked him. <laughs> uh, did you guys yeah, know each other? Said, did you okay. go back yeah, I knew Richard. Like I, I've known Richard for years. Okay. I met Richard at McCabe's, you know, McCabe's is sort of my home club in, uh, I had to change venues here. My, no McCabe's is like my, my home club in Los Angeles. You know, uh -huh. I play there uh, pretty regularly and, um, Richard plays there too. I've seen Richard play there. And I mean, I've seen everybody in the, it's a folk club. It's kind of like a, it's a guitar store during the day and at night it's a club, a concert hall. And I've seen everybody from, I met Memphis, Memphis Slim. I met him there, you know, Ooh. and I met, um, Doc Watson there, you know. Oh, sure, sure. And um, a lot of people, you know. I've, so I've seen Ramblin' Jack Elliott, you know, and Dave Van yeah. Rock, and, uh, you know, everybody played there. And Lucinda Williams and Richard would play there, and everybody would play there. So it was uh, a great place to play. And, and uh, I, I met Richard there, and, you know, I hung out with him a few different times, you know, cracking jokes and playing uh -huh. guitars or something. And so it made sense to, uh, to ask him to call, come collaborate with you. Yeah. And so it was great. You know, I called him up and he said, you know, we called him up and he said he would come in and then he was coming in the next day. And all of a sudden I go, oh, my God, I don't have a song. You know, uh, <laughs> I got so I sat up in the kitchen. You know, I, I mean, I had songs, but I didn't have something that would really feature Richard in the right way. So I I sat up in the kitchen and drank a couple of pots of coffee and stayed up like half the night and wrote every 24 hours. And I never really played it for anyone except my, my wife, Denise, you know, and she thought it was all right. So I go to, I show up the next day with a session and like to play it. You know, I played it pretty much the first time out in public for Richard and the <laughs> producer. And, uh, he, he goes, yeah, it's good, you know. And then, yeah. <laughs> so he was such a quick take, you know, I mean, he's really? such a great musician that we just, uh, 
we did like two a couple different takes of it and they were both different we didn't rehearse it or anything we just played it and then i said hey can you sing on it too and he yeah. i mean I, you know i'm kind of pushing things but like can you sing on it too yeah no problem so you such a great musician man and a nice guy yeah. so, so it was it was really fun to work with him um also speaking of people of other collaborators i love los lobos and oh, you have David Hidalgo early on. I'm trying to remember, was that on the first album or the second one? It was the second album. Uh, it was called uh, Man with a Blue Postmodern Fragmented Neo-Traditionalist Guitar. And we <laughs> did that. It was the second uh, Geffen solo record. And David, the band on that was Jim Keltner and uh, David yeah. Hidalgo and um, Steve Souls. Yes. And um, Yeah. All these people are like, sure, I'll drop everything and go play on Peter Case's second solo album. You know what I mean? This guy yeah, was really fun. I'd, I'd known Los Lobos from uh, the Plimsolls had played a lot of dates. You Los would have, yes, that's yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. I always loved him. So David came down, and then Rye Cooter came down, and he played on a track with uh, David and Jim too. So that that was fun. And, Which one uh, was that? I want to play a little bit of it right here. Until the hotel. There's the two uh, guitars. That, two. That's guitars. my favorite song on that album. That makes sense. Well, there was no way of telling on the first day in town How far it was from the Greyhound station to midnight And always You checked into a room at the Intella Hotel Got used to the gloom and the smell And the thrill at the sight of old men laying in hallways so you go up on Broadway Where the sailors all roll And the girls give themselves names Like Lola, Estelle, and Nico They work at a place Called the Garden of Earthly Delights And the tourists pour in from all over To take in the sight Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, uh, so that was fun, and that was a, uh, and then Lindley was on that record too, David Lindley. And yeah. so we had a lot of great musicians on that record. You know, uh, yeah. very fortunate, you know, to uh, work with such great people. It was interesting to me in listening back to your early stuff, especially getting ready to talk to you. And I'm thinking this feels, this music feel, for the 80s feels so out of place. And yeah. because, you know, no one, especially when, you know, that the man with the blue post modern, all that stuff. The first song, <laughs> Charlie James, this very deep down home blues, acoustic -y blues song. You see Charlie James walking down the road. Please don't tell him which way you see me go. I had a whole lot of trouble since I saw you last. I don't know my future. I don't.
next day I did not have a dime Looking on down the road As far as I could see I thought I saw my old time used to be And I'm thinking nobody else in 1989 is really doing this kind of thing. Lone yeah, Justice kind of, did something similar a little bit ago. Black Crows are gonna are about to do something similar. Yeah, they used to come to my gigs when they were called uh, Mr. Uh, I Mr. Can't remember. Crows, Mr. Crows Garden or something yeah, like Mr. that. Mr. Crows, that's it. To, yes, I remember some of those guys came to the Nashville gig before before they yeah. were Black Crows. Well, you know the, that that caused consternation over at Geffen. You know, you, you know, I was swimming uh, outside the. Um, I was swimming way out to sea on that one. There's no synthesizers, <laughs> yeah. you know, there's none yeah, of that. You know, especially the blues opening on the record. But I'll tell you about that opening on that thing. As I was doing this play, it was a Sam Shepard play that was uh, debuting at um, the Mark Taper Forum in L.A. And I got hired to be the sound person, the music person for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess on the basis of my song, Walk in the Woods, from my first album, they thought, well, that's perfect. So we put that song into the play. And then uh, I, the show started... It, it was a big show, really. It broke all the attendance records at the Mark Taper and all this stuff. But it started, the theater goes dark, and then Charlie James starts up, you know, like with that 12-string and the harmonica beautiful. and the whole thing. Oh, and so that's how the show uh, the show would always start, you know. And then, like, the, the star of the show is this guy, John Deal, and he would come out and he'd be, like, at a payphone going crazy trying to get, you know, <laughs> trying to smash it up. Uh-huh. And uh, that would be the start of the thing. And the car, the harmonica plays the cars going by. <laughs> Yeah. He's out on the highway, you know, going mad, and so uh, that was how, that's why that record started like that because I thought it was mm-hmm. so effective as, as that that it would be cool to start the record like that too. And so, makes total um, sense. you know, so yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, I was curious too. Has has a has there ever been? <laughs> no offense. Has there ever been a real marketing push from your record label? Back, maybe back in like the bigger label days to like really break Peter Case. I was trying to think about, like dream about you from that Six Pack of Love album.
I remember that getting a little bit of airplay. Um, yeah, they came out at the wrong time, though, you know. Uh, they came out right when the label got Nirvana, so, you know. But I'll tell you what happened, man. It's like, I so I left the Plimsolls. You know, we had a pretty big thing with a million miles away, and then um, this, that, and the other thing. But um, I had my first album, and we cut this song. I went to this uh, one night. I was sitting up with T-Bone and Bob Newirth and some people playing guitars, and Elvis Costello came in, and he played... Uh, pair of brown eyes we we're in a hotel room you know playing guitars oh. and he played pair of brown eyes and he just done it with uh the pogues you know and i'm like wow that's fantastic man and i said t-bone maybe you know i think elvis would like let us do that song and you know see if he can get the permission from the pogues so he we did and he did and so we went in and we cut it um with a band though because like with a more of an electric thing we said well like kind of like the birds did with mr tambourine man and so we we uh, got roger mcguinn actually and we had van we had a band with roger mcguinn van dyke barks jim keltner t-bone and and we cut the first american version the first version anywhere of pair of brown eyes uh, we had rights to it um they i guess i'm outside of the pogues you know So it's on the record and all the whole rest of the record and you know t-bone saying things in the studio like if this record doesn't sell like a million copies i'm <laughs> gonna quit the business you know <laughs> which that didn't really happen but uh yeah um so i got a call from uh, the records coming out and then i get a call from uh, geffen was being distributed by uh warner brothers at the time and uh, a guy over at warner brothers who was the head of uh i guess marketing or something he was a vice president and he called me up, Peter, come over to my office. So I go over there, you know, I was out in Burbank, and I go out there, hey, man. And he says, look, we love this track. We love this album, and we think we can break this album really big. And we want to make a video because we think we can make a great video. And we, we've got this guy from who made the AHA video. Oh, sure. And uh, if you're open to that, man, we're good. we'll do that, and we'll make a video of Pair of Brown Eyes. And it'll be a great video. And then, uh, but all we, we'll put in half the money and Geffen has to put in the other half. He has to put in 50,000 of marketing money or something to it. Mm -hmm. And so they said, well, so we're going to call Geffen. We're going to do this. I'm like, oh, this is great, man. So uh, <laughs> they called somebody over at Geffen. I think it was Ed Rosenblatt or some you know, big cheese over there. And the guy over there goes, we're not spending another dime on Peter Chase. And that's what they said, you know. Why? Um, uh, because they, because they, that guy, I don't think that was David, but it was somebody that didn't understand it. And like, you know, yeah. they, they just didn't know what we were, they didn't get what we were doing. They wanted me to like, you know, 
be like Def Leppard or something. I don't know what they were very hard rock oriented, you know, and they didn't realize there was this coming thing. My, yeah. I was ahead of the cur- curve on all this stuff, you know, Big time. And, and, and they didn't, they just couldn't pick up on it. Yeah. And, uh, so they didn't yeah. do anything for it. Oh, uh, you could have, I mean, I'm thinking of bands like Indigo Girls and REM and 10,000 Maniacs and, and those, the call and those kind of bands that are, you know, based in some folkiness, some rootsiness, and you would have been right there. You could have ridden that same wave. I was right at know? the front of it, you know. I, yeah. I one of the first people to do that kind of thing. And, you know, we cut the record uh, in 85, and it could have come out in 85, but they put the brakes on it, so it didn't come out until 86. But, you know, um, it was a, it just is what it is, man. You know, yeah. I was so frustrated. You know, it's like beating your head against the wall. But, yeah, you know, I was angry for a while. But, you know, I, you, know you just have to. Uh, yeah persevere yeah. in life and you know play the cards you dealt and all that kind of thing so i mean i i couldn't really uh i, I tried to buck their system and i you know i did my best but you know the main thing for me was just to persevere you know and just keep yeah. playing and keep yeah. writing and try to write the best possible songs you can write and try to you know try to get on a wavelength with them um, yeah. that would make sense but it was very difficult um i believe it i believe it well, I've got some other questions about that, but I'm gonna. We have some Patreon supporters, and I always tell them who I'm interviewing, and if they want to submit questions or something, they can. And um, one of them uh, is from Jake Rude. Uh, he wanted to know, and he was just so you know, he was very sensitive about this. He said, "I understand that not What's everyone name? wants to." Jake Rude, who oh, is actually, yeah, 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 I was gonna say he's actually a pretty well-known DJ. He's one of our listeners and one of our supporters, thankfully. And he was like, you know, I know that a lot of legacy artists don't want to talk about the past that much, but if he seems open to asking about what it was like filming the scenes for Valley girl, would uh, read the room? And if he's open to it, ask him about it. You seem down enough. So tell me about, uh, you know, filming that, those scenes in that movie, which I just watched that movie again, like a couple of weeks ago, it just lives on, you know, it's out there for every new generation to discover. You know, places I go into the culture, but I'll tell you, man, like it, we didn't really have the plimsolls were so busy at that time. We we had a, we just made um, everywhere at once album. And we, so, we, so we're coming out with that. We're on the radio. Like before that record album came out, we already had a hit on the radio with a million miles away. So we're like in demand, man. And we're playing like all the time from L.A. and San Francisco over to Texas and Phoenix. And like we're just like doing this like uh, constant run on the road and all the time. And um playing 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 and like work and you know doing all sort of thing and then we get this thing well this movie wants you to be in the, you know want to use some of your songs for the movie they got this new you know uh they didn't tell me the name of the movie i said well maybe you know and we were talking i was talking to martha coolidge like how you could call it everywhere at once if you want to it would, it would fit <laughs> what you're doing you know yeah, but, yeah. But we were talking about it but but uh you know, uh, Nicholas Cage and Cameron Dye, you know, the two guys that were like sidekicks, Nicholas hadn't made a movie yet. I had no idea who he was. And he was coming, he came to some rehearsals with us out in Burbank. And, um, you know, he was a great guy, you know, really cool guy. And like, he, you could tell he was really taking acting seriously, whatever that movie was. Right. So it was exciting, but it was just like a day's work, you know. Yeah. Uh, we just went down to the club and you can tell it's all in one day because it's supposed to be a six month period. But if you look close, I'm wearing the same shirt, you know. <laughs> Like, you know, six months later, I'm wearing his green shirt, you know, which it wasn't that unrealistic that I would be wearing the same shirt for six <laughs> right, months, but maybe it's a little bit of a stretch. And so, <laughs> yeah. you, you know, and so uh, it was fun. You know, Nicholas Cage obviously was like a really uh, 
all the people on the film were great, Martha Coolidge and everybody. Yeah. And, and, you know, and then it didn't come out. I can't remember exactly what happened. It took a long time for it to come out. I think we may have actually been right on the verge of breaking up when it came out. Ooh, and then they wow. never put out a soundtrack to it until much later. You know, the whole thing was like kind of a, uh, and then it, where it really took off is when it got on TV mm-hmm. and it became like a cult movie. Um, mm-hmm. I, and I started, so I'm out on the road as a solo and I'm, if I played oldest story in the world or everywhere at once, or a million, especially the oldest story in the world, I would look out and all the lights on cameras would go on <laughs> out in the audience. So it would be all these kids and they wanted to relive <laughs> Valley. That's the moment they're know? waiting for. Yep. It's the moment they were waiting for for a while. Yep. Yeah. So it was cool. It was kind of a cult. Okay. When you play now, do you play those old songs or is that like, that's a different life? I'm not interested in playing yeah, a million I miles I play, away. I play a million miles away and I play oldest story in the world. I've been known to play everywhere at once. Okay. Uh, uh, you know, I play, yeah, I play every, off from the first album. I play, you know, I play some nerve songs, you know. Okay. okay. Generally, though, for a long time I didn't, you know, and I was just doing like the folk music and I had my guitar tuned, but, but I had my guitar tuned in the C tuning. And so it was like, I did that for like 25, 30 years or something. And I learned how to play everything I know how to do in a regular uh-huh. tuning. I can do it all in C tuning. So that was like a kick, learning how to do everything in, in, uh, different tunings you know so that's yeah. that's what i did so i yeah i still do a lot of those things okay okay maybe more than ever really uh okay i, I appreciate you know i do when you find out and you know the nerves have a lot of young fans you know and uh i didn't i didn't really know the extent of that until i went on to that tour with paul collins mm-hmm. and uh man we got done we got we went to some gigs and they'd just be packed with like but everybody in there would be like tw- in their tw- early 20s or younger mm-hmm. and uh they would know the words to the songs you know like mm-hmm. we played this one place down in texas with like a thousand kids they're like teenagers and they knew when you find out and hanging on the telephone and stuff and they like it was nuts and so yeah. it was such a like eye opener we're like oh my god i can't believe there's a whole new generation of people yeah. that are picking up on this so so I still play that, you know, I'm trying to okay. bring people along into what I'm doing now. Cause to me, like when I was a teenager, see, I was into, it wasn't just like I had to listen to teenage music. I listened right. to Bob Dylan and I listened to Muddy Waters when I was a teenager and I listened to Mississippi John Hurt and I listened to Creedence Clearwater, which at the time was the teeny bop music. And I listened to the Beatles which at the time was the teeny bop music, but I also listened to Stones. And then, you know, I would listen to Ray Charles, man, when I was a kid, you know, at all Motown everything you know there was so much great music and it was all stuff that a teenager could listen to and then i would listen to weird folk records like fred neal and yeah um, i mean that might have been special to me but i liked the incredible string band and fred neal and uh, you know <laughs> stuff like that yeah, i liked it and uh fred neal was I'm, great he so, is you great know, buckley you know and, oh yeah uh, there you go yeah and i listened to jazz too you know so i was into i was just into music man i dig music and i dig musicians and i like the whole idea of playing all kinds of different things i mean i took a bus from uh, my little town south of buffalo i'm from that town where they get the huge piles of snow south of buffalo oh. it's hamburg new york like if you ever see a news report seven feet last night in buffalo it's always <laughs> hamburg that's the town i'm from you know and so uh and so uh, I took the bus in the winter from that little town into the uh-huh. Buffalo library so I could listen to Charlie Parker. Mm-hmm. I'd called up on the telephone, do you have Charlie Parker records? And they go, yes. And it's like, okay. I got on the bus and I rode all the way into Buffalo. And then I walked from the bus stop to the thing. And I went in there and they gave me the Charlie Parker record. And I, I'd never heard him. And I took it into uh-huh. a... Um, one of those, they had a listening room. And you go, oh, my uh-huh. God, Charlie Park, this is fantastic bird, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, stuff like that. So I was on a music, uh, I wanted to know everything, you know. Oh, that's the best. That's when that's I was what, a teenager. That's when, I, that, I mean, that's, 
that's when I became that guy too, and I still am. I mean, there's just an endless river of great right. music out there to just depending on your mood. And you know, that's the best part of being a music lover. Okay, I have two questions, okay. last questions for you, and then I'll let you go. Number one, and th there may not be a story here, but I grew up in Salt Lake City. And when you were just talking just now about, you know, playing all over those all over the West in Plim Souls or on your own, have you I'm trying to remember if and when you've played Salt Lake City, because I would think I would have saw, I would have seen it, but I haven't ever seen you live, and so I don't remember. Okay, have you ever played close. Salt Lake City? Oh yeah, I've played there uh, three different times. Okay, that's not so, many for my career, but it's three times. I no, played there. Fine. I played there uh, in 1983, opening at a huge concert for Men at Work. Whoa! A huge like a huge auto yeah. arena, and we had a great show there and got a lot of fans. And then I came back in. Uh, 89 with a, my band the blue guitar band and we played a club there and we had a great gig okay then i came back i was on this tour with these guys called david and david that had sort of a yeah, club. welcome of course. To so yes. we came through and that was booked they were kind of popular and we came through and we played this like big drunken bar room it was, uh, you know people were so drunk in this gig yeah and uh, they were making so much noise and, and i was playing solo and like you know it was just not a good gig and so but but I've played and I can't remember if I've ever played any other gigs there. But I okay. definitely there was one gig in '89 that was great. I mean, it's a million years ago, but I, it's yeah. hard to get to it really unless you've got like, uh, you know, you can play it on a swing with. You know, I might have played it on another swing with Denver, but I have played there and I hope to play there again this year. Good. I live in Denver, so I hope you do pass through. I love through. Denver. Yes. Um, I, I, you know, I, I go way back with Denver to the nerves, you know. Yeah, like I we, bet you do. There used to be this place called uh, Wax Tracks. I that's. Real close to my house. The original Wax Tracks was just the greatest place, Jim Nash. And yeah. like doing the Nerves tour, and we come in there, and like those guys at that place, they, you know, they threw like a huge kegger party up in yeah. the 90s for us. And like we just, I just hung out in there and listened to Rockabilly Records, oh, nice. Bill Spector Records while they played, <laughs> drinking beer and hanging nice. out. Like, it was so much fun. And I stayed, we stayed in Denver, for, um, we were there for about a week or something. Oh, great. You know, the guy yeah. from the, Jello Biafra came and to the Nerves gig at that place, and he he had long hair at the time. He hadn't gone punk yet, and uh, it was like early on. So I, you know, I I still love Denver. I've always I've always really enjoyed. Um, I love oh, Denver. Good, it's a great good. City, you know, yeah. I know. I love it here too. We were talking earlier about all the bands you saw growing up in California. I, growing up in Salt Lake City, none of those cool bands came through, or not very often anyway. And um, so I didn't get that privilege, but. So many of the people that I've had on here, when I tell them I'm from Salt Lake City, they've got a crazy story. Oh, because of the dichotomy between <laughs> the, the hyper-religious people and then the rebellious people who are, who are going against the religious norm, did you, uh, do you remember any weird stories relating to Salt Lake City specifically or just good shows? No, I had good shows there. You know, I, I, I'm trying to... The last show was a weird show. I'm, I'm telling you, yeah. it was a big drunken room. I like that song by the Beach Boys, Salt, Salt Lake City. You know that one? Uh -huh. Uh -huh. I it's do good. know that one. On Summer yeah. Days and Summer Nights, I think. Yeah. It's a great song. I think it, it's one of the first songs on the record. But um, no, I, I, I okay. never really got in trouble okay. over there with the, with the people in Salt Lake City. Some people um, have really wild stories. Yeah, I, I would I come see. in and go out. I, I don't know. It, it was a lot of fun. We had good times over there, but I, I don't remember. Okay, just curious. Okay, last question. You used to do your blog on your website, and I would check in periodically to just see what you wrote and had to say. And one of the times, it was about a year or two ago, 
you tease something about a story about busking with Allen Ginsberg. Oh, and yeah. I thought, I want to know what that story is. So close us out with telling us the story about busking with Allen Ginsberg. What was that? Well, you know, I was just out there playing every night on the street corner. Uh, my, the front line of my war on poverty was the corner of Broadway and Columbus in San Francisco, uh, right across the street from City Lights. And so we were out there all the time. We'd see Ferlinghetti coming and going and all these guys. And then one day um, I had this little street band. We were called the Frozen Chosen at the time. And uh, we were sort of playing, you know, rock and roll and different kinds of blues and stuff. And so uh, one day this here comes this guy across the street. Like I knew who Allen Ginsberg was because I would uh, I was a big fan of Planet um, News when I was a teenager. And Howl and Caddish. I had all those books when I was a teenager. And so... Uh, here he comes. Hey, my name's Alan. You know, yeah. Uh, and uh, you guys mind if I sit in with you? You know, he'd come right out of City Lights and seen us over there playing and came over with us. And so, yeah, sure, man. So he goes, can you guys play some country blues? And we're like, yeah, sure. You know, so we start playing, uh, um, you know, just going through some like country yeah. blues type progressions. And he started busking, making up songs. And so we're out there on the street corner and uh, everybody's walking by, you know, uh, Navy guys on leave and, the, you know, the girls that dance at the strip club and the <laughs> guys with their white shoes, the tourists, and like everybody, nobody recognizes him. Uh, they just, <laughs> he's just singing away, you know, making up this song about the White House. And um, he went on and on and on about it. So then uh, he was pretty friendly. And then he would, uh, he picked us up the next day in his car, him and uh, Peter Olovsky were driving around. We were on our way over to the Goodwill. So he drive. where are you guys going? Like, we're going over to the Goodwill. I will call, you know, I'll give you a ride over there. So we get in the back and he's like, uh, so what do you guys do for your voices out there? And we're like, uh, he goes, uh, we go, well, you know, I'll probably just drink some whiskey or something. He goes, well, I was talking to Dylan, man. And he's and like, we look at each other like, Dylan's talking to Dylan, man. Uh -huh, uh -huh. <laughs> like, you know, dropping names. He, Dylan told me, you know, honey and lemon, you know, and all this. So, but he was really a cool guy. He was very cool. And, cool. Uh, we talked to him quite a bit and uh, he ended up, I ended up going out, leaving town, like during the middle of that, he was coming out every night for a while, but I went out on the road myself and I hitchhiked up to Portland and he ended up taking the guy I was playing with in that frozen shows and had him back. They, they did a reading with Gary Snyder over in Ber Berkeley community theater. I think it was. And, and, and Danny, my pal, you know, he backed Ginsburg up on guitar over there at that thing. But I, I wasn't, I didn't do it because I blew town. <laughs> but, but, you know, wow. that's what, what happened. It was so exciting because, you know, I, uh, he was, I, you know, he's one of my heroes. Yeah. What a life, man. Peter, thank you for being you and for uh, chatting with me and telling these great stories. You're the best. Hey, thanks a lot, John. I, I, great to do it with you, man. Thanks for, uh, getting this thing out going out here, you know? Of course. And, uh, of course. Happy to do it. All right, there you have it, Peter Case. Uh, Dr. Moan just came out last week, and it's great. It might be one of my favorite Peter Case albums. Uh, I like that. I like the, well, I like a lot of them, but I like the new one. And then his last album is also one of my favorites. It's called Highway 62. We didn't get into it as much, but there's a track on there called Pelican Bay. That's what you're listening to here. So hopefully you heard some things that you like. Um, if you don't own the Nerves or the Plimsolls, of course go back and check that out. But there's plenty of Peter Case's solo albums that are worth your time and attention. Hopefully you find some of that stuff too. Now, next week's guest, as I said, we're talking to two back-to-back -back lead singers of important American kind of new wave, power pop, post-punk bands. And the second one is next week. 
This person, unlike Peter Case, did not stay in music. Uh, by probably the mid to late 80s, they were done, and uh, they went off and became a regular person. But the band they were in is putting out a new album, a live album, from back in the day for Record Store Day, and that's who we're talking to next week. And it's a really fun, interesting conversation. You'll love this person. All right? Now, huge thanks, as always, to Yanaman Makevich, my right-hand man for everything. Um, he's taking next week off, and so next week, Ken Mills is stepping in for us, the podfather that we love so much. You guys can like our page on Facebook. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can kind of maybe find me on Twitter at thehustlepod. We've got, as I've mentioned before, a bunch of bonus stuff in the can. Yan's busy. I don't know what's going to come out or when or what. So just keep your eyes peeled for it. In fact, if you're not already subscribers, I don't know what you're doing. If you subscribe, it'll just show up. Speaking of subscribers, join Patreon too while you're at it. Because we like to give stuff away. All right? Anyway, thanks everybody. We love you. But the guys were feeling angry, so they confiscated it. For the slightest of infractions, extracted from the cell. Pretty soon he got a broken jaw, and the guy just says it fell. Now there's two million people in prison tonight in the USA. 80,000 in solitary, and hundreds got on Pelican Bay. Well, it ain't no kind of justice, it's a system of abuse. There ain't no courts watching over it, politicians say what's the use. We got the highest rate of incarceration in the world, and the prisoners are black. It's a brand of slavery, everybody knows the black is that. Now there's two million people in prison, tonight in the USA. 80,000 in Supermax and a hunger strike on Pelican Bay.